Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with it. Uh, to, to, please turn in it with me uh, to First Samuel chapter twenty-one, verses one through nine. First Samuel twenty-one, verses one through nine. <clears throat> Few experiences in our lives can make the hair stand up on the back of our neck, similarly to a manhunt. In the musical adaptation of Victor Hugo's novel, Les Mis, police inspector Javert makes it his life aim to recapture Jean Valjean after he breaks parole. The stress and inner turmoil of his pursuit is palpable as Jean Valjean runs away from Javert, constantly looking over his shoulder, moving locations, livelihood, his job, everything, narrowly escaping the clutches of Javert. In The Lord of the Rings, Frodo Baggins is tasked with taking the one ring to rule them all to the fires of Mount Doom to destroy it so that Sauron cannot take it into his own clutches. In the process, Frodo is hunted by Nazgul, orcs, giant spiders, which is the most terrifying part, and the Dark Lord himself. Or how many of us have played Captured the Flag in the dark? And you're lurking in enemy territory, you're waiting for your time to strike, your breath shakes, your legs are primed to sprint, you're constantly looking over your shoulder for signs of the enemy. And though innocent and fun, the adrenaline rush and the stress is real. Well, here in 1 Samuel 21, we find ourselves at the beginning of Saul's pursuit of David. David was the golden child of Israel in that day. He was the slayer of Goliath. He was the conqueror of Philistine armies. He was the anointed future king of Israel, the son-in-law of King Saul himself. And the Israelites even sang a song to his name. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And because of this, Saul was incredibly jealous of David, to the point where Saul strongly desired to kill David. And we enter our story at this point. Saul has made it pretty clear that he wants to kill David. Life tip, if somebody throws a spear at you, he probably wants to kill you. But Jonathan, also King Saul's son, David's best friend, has just confirmed this truth to David. And so David goes on the run, he leaves Israel, he leaves his family, he leaves his wife, he leaves his best friend, and he goes into hiding. And the might of the king of Israel and all of his resources are chasing him down in order to murder him. And you can imagine the, the stress that is gripping David at this time. The adrenaline, the fear. And it's at this point... At the very beginning of this pursuit is where we enter in with our future king of Israel. So, please follow along with me in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. 
Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Let's pray. Father, may you soften our hearts. May you give me words to speak. May your word go forth powerfully this evening. And may you give us peace and comfort in the light of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So our devotion this evening is going to focus on three main points. The first point, God gives help. The second point, God gives grace. And our third point, God gives reminders. So, point one, God gives help. As we read this story, we notice that the first place that David goes when he is on the run, he doesn't go to find a place to hide. He doesn't leave the country yet. He doesn't make a disguise for himself, but the first place that he goes to is to the house of the Lord. In the midst of likely the most stressful situation of his entire life to this point, David goes to the Lord's house because he needs three things. He needs provision, as we see in verse 3. He needs bread. He needs protection from the sword in verse 8. And he needs wisdom. Because he inquired of the Lord while he was here over it. Uh, and this is referenced in chapter 22, verse 10. And he knows that these three things come from nowhere else but from God himself. And so David goes to the Lord's house because he knows that he cannot find these things anywhere else but in the presence of his God. Now, David gets a lot of things wrong in his life. But one thing that we cannot fault him for is that he is constantly going to, to the Lord. He is constantly seeking God for help in the situations that he finds himself in. David knows that he is a sinner who needs a Savior. He is a creature and not the Creator. He is a servant and not the Master. And he seeks the counsel of the Lord constantly. And he is called, because of this, a man after God's own heart. Because of this character trait. Not because he lived a perfect life, but because he knew that he could never live a perfect life. And that he needed the Lord's righteousness on his behalf and went to the Lord in his need. The story of David and Saul is a case study in God exalting the humble and bringing low the proud. At this point in the story, we see David humbled, on the run, scared for his life. And we see Saul enraged with jealousy. 
seeking to kill David, almost killing his own son because he sided with David, and later killing these Israelite priests because they helped David in his need. But it doesn't stay like that for the entire story. God exalts the humble and he brings low the proud. Eventually Saul will commit suicide and David will become the greatest king that Israel will ever see. And doesn't, doesn't this story sound just like our Savior, Jesus Christ? Who humbled himself by coming in, the, in human form and dying on a cross for our sins and is now highly exalted in the heavenly places. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so shall it be with us, brothers and sisters. Everywhere in the Bible, we see that the way to exaltation is through humility, through making yourself low. When the stresses of this life push against you, who do you turn to? We feel like we can provide for ourselves because we have a good job. Or we feel like we're protected because we can lock our doors at night. Or we feel like we know what we're doing in our wives because we are hard workers and it's turned out well for us so far. But when we're at the end of ourselves and all of this is taken away, just like David was, we see that the truth that was there all along, that our only provision, our only protection, and our only wisdom comes from the Lord himself. We are only one car accident away one stock market collapse, one politician deciding that he wants to persecute Christians, one nuclear bomb from Russia, one mental breakdown away from our house of cards falling flat. Our only provision, protection, and wisdom comes from the Lord. Do you believe this? Because if we did, we would seek God as David does, in good times and in bad. Do we seek the Lord first when everything around us is falling apart? Or do we just dig in and work harder? One thing to be said about this, one of the primary ways that the Lord provides this provision, this wisdom and protection for his people is through the local church. The Lord provides comfort and support as his people bear one another's burdens and come alongside each other, weeping with each other, mourning with each other, and rejoicing with each other. The Lord provides wisdom to his people through the abundance of counselors sitting in the seats next to you right now. And people, the church is a source of protection for you as well. Both spiritually, as you fight against the wiles of, of the devil, but physically, too. If you are being abused in any way, physically, sexually, emotionally, we want to help you. Our pastors want to help you. Your church family wants to help you. Tell somebody and receive the help that the Lord offers in his church. So point one was God gives provision. Point two was God gives grace. God gives grace. So soon after David arrives at the tabernacle, David concocts this lie that he tells to the priests. Now, some biblical scholars believe that David was telling this lie to the priest so that he could kind of give him this, this plausible de de deniability. If King Saul were to come and ask him what happened, uh, the priest could give this story and it would all pan out well. Um, 
I believe this is absolutely possible, but I don't think that it's likely. I think that the more likely situation is that David simply acted out of fear. I think that David was being hunted by the king. He was scared for his life. He needed food, and he told a lie. And I think many of us should be able to sympathize with David in this moment. So rather than tell the truth and trust the Lord's people, he decides to tell this lie, and this lie has devastating consequences. The priest in the tabernacle would later be killed by Doeg, who we see in in this story at the command of King Saul. But here's the thing. Even though David lied, God still provided for David. Even though he sinned, despite David's lie, God still gives David the bread from from the priest. God sustains David's life. God is gracious to him. And what good news this is to us, brothers and sisters. Even though we sin against God, even though we are not perfect in every decision that we, we make, if we would repent of our sin, just as David does later in chapter 22, God is still gracious to us. Many of us can at times feel like God is this this cruel judge who is sitting in the sky weighing our good deeds and our bad deeds. And sure, he justified me and he took care of that part and I'm, I'm justified for eternity, but in this life, in this life, he punishes me for the bad things that, that I do. When something goes bad in your life, we can tend to think, what sin did I do to deserve this? But brothers and sisters, if you repent of your sin, just as David does later in chapter 22, then God will be gracious with your sin. Your sin is washed away by the blood of Jesus, and he is kind and merciful and bears with us in our sin. Now, just to be clear here, our sin does have consequences. If you continue to look at pornography, it will destroy your marriage. If you embezzle money, you may be found out and go to jail. If you continue to talk about people behind their back, you probably won't have many friends. But God is not calculating how to make us pay for every little sin that we commit, but he is gracious and kind to those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, because all of it has already been paid for by him. We sang it earlier this morning, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. So point three. Point three, God gives reminders. God gives reminders. So at the end of this passage, we see David asking for a sword from the priest, to which the priest offers David the sword of Goliath. And can I just mention um, how cool this scene actually is? Uh, I can almost hear John Williams playing in the background as David walks up to the sword and says, there's none like it, give it to me. But anyway, now at first glance, this seems like to be a really cool cinematic opportunity, okay? But as we look at it deeper, we see that there's more to this. Surely the sword of Goliath would serve as a very acute reminder to David of his battle with the giant. Against all odds, this shepherd boy who had no armor, a sling, and five smooth stones, defeated the champion of, of the Philistines. David's victory came not because of his might, but because of the might of his God. 
And David trusted in his God in the midst of it. And here, in a similar situation, David is given back the sword of Goliath against incredible odds. The armies of Israel are against him. The king is hunting him down. And David is given this visible reminder of the Lord's faithfulness to him in the past. Every time David used the sword of Goliath, nay, every time he looked at the sword of Goliath, it would be an Ebenezer stone, a rainbow in the sky, pointing to the Lord's faithfulness in the past and reminding him of the faithfulness of God in the future as well. And brothers, this should not be, brothers and sisters, this should not be surprising to us that the one, that one of the most common commands in the Bible is to re- remember. Remembering what the Lord has done for us. Remembering who we were before we came to faith in Christ. Remembering what Jesus did for you on the cross. And practical ways that we can do this, you could have prayer lists. As you're praying, just write down each prayer request that you're going through. Then look back and see how God has been faithful to you in the past. Journaling. You can chronicle the things that God is teaching you on a daily, weekly, monthly basis and look back at what God has done. Scripture memory. We can memorize pieces of scripture and review them and what God has promised in his word and what he's done as well. I think there's even value in little trinkets in our life that point to God's faithfulness to us, that remind us of God's faithfulness. When I became a a Christian my freshman year of college, two guys uh, shared the bridge diagram with me from Romans 6 to 23. And... uh, to this day, 14 years later, I still have that piece of paper framed in my house to re- remind me of God's faithfulness, to save me out of the, the darkness that I was in and bring me into life. Now, we have to be careful that we're not praying to these objects or treating the, the, them as idols, of course. But I think that there's value in having these little things that point us to how God has been faithful to us. And just as there are things in our lives that point to the faithfulness of God, the Lord himself has instituted two particular ordinances to remind us of his faithfulness and grace in forgiving us of our sins. He's given us baptism, which is the initial sign of the covenant, which shows that we have died to our sins and raised again to newness of life. And he's given us the Lord's Supper, the continual sign of the covenant, a reminder that Jesus' body was broken for our sins, and his body was spilled, or his blood was spilled to make a new covenant for us. And though we were completely unworthy of his forgiveness, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we partake in this table, we must consider and remember the heavy price that was paid for our sins and rejoice at the life that is given to us through the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Today, we are not enemies of the God of the universe, but we are welcome to his banquet hall. And praise God, there's truly nothing like this gospel. Give it to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins. We thank you that you are faithful to your people. We thank you that you do not hold our sins against us, but you have given us perfect forgiveness for all of our sins and wiped us clean through the blood of Jesus. I pray that we would be active in remembering this truth, and I pray that, um, that we would never forget it as we go about our days. In Jesus' name, amen.